That brings us to the kings. By the 11,000s BC, the political leaders of the judges and the religious leaders of the priests had become thoroughly corrupted. Judges is full of examples of the political leaders being corrupt and the religious leaders being corrupt. Yahweh called Samuel to be a judge and a prophet over Israel and to deliver Israel from their enemy in the way that the previous judges had failed to do. So Samuel becomes another judge. He actually is faithful. And it's with Samuel that he begins the office of prophet. Now we've had prophets already, Moses, Deborah, Miriam, some other prophets. Yet is this point that the prophet is actually going to be established as an official office that's going to have multiple prophets leading Israel and taking care of them. Samuel faithfully served Yahweh and led the people throughout his entire life. Now, what is a prophet? Now, this is important. We're going to define prophet and king to understand what's happening. So prophet, this is the definition. A prophet is one who is on the divine counsel of Yahweh and speaks the will of Yahweh to the people. He's on the divine counsel of Yahweh and speaks the will of Yahweh to the people. He's on the divine counsel of Yahweh and speaks the will of Yahweh to the people. Nobody has access to God. Nobody can come into the presence of God and speak to him and know his will because of our sins. So we're cut off, which means everybody on earth doesn't know the will of God. So how do you make your will known to the people on earth? The prophets. So there is a group of men and women that have actually been able to live their life in a much more righteous, holy way than most people do. And because they are committed to Yahweh and are faithful to Yahweh, Yahweh has given them the blessing of bringing them up into the divine council. And we see this. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is brought up into heaven. He sees a vision of God on the throne with angels. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 22. Micaiah goes up into his vision and God is telling him, hey, what should we do with Ahab? And Micaiah brings the message back down. We, we see this over and over again. And we actually see this divine counsel in the book of Job when it says on the day that the sons of God presented themselves before Yahweh. It's a whole, all of them there. And so the prophet's brought up into the divine will of the counsel of Yahweh, and he hears Yahweh's will. So Yahweh says, who will go for these people and speak this message of repentance? And Isaiah says, send me, I will go. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and he brings the will of God back to the people, the law, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system. They bring the will of God back to the people, and they speak it to the people, so the people can actually know the will of God. And that's all a prophet is. It's someone who's brought up into the counsel of God. God tells them what to say or do, and they come back to earth, and they, 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 they make it known to the people. They make it known to the people. Now, what is the definition of a king? Not just a king in a worldly sense, but an Israelite king. A king that's supposed to be the king of God, as in the king that belongs to God, not the king of God. The king executes the will of Yahweh to the people. He's the one that makes Yahweh's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He executes the will of Yahweh. So the prophet makes the will of Yahweh known to the people, and the king makes sure that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. The image that you have here is you have Yahweh in heaven as the heavenly king. And you have the king on earth as the earthly king. And the prophet is the link between the two. He is the link between the two. He is the one that makes God's will in heaven known on earth. And the king that makes thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. That's the job of the king. So he is a more higher version of 
what everybody in Israel is supposed to be. He is the image of God. What this is then is a theocracy. The king is actually not a king. He's a vice regent. The king is Yahweh. And what the book of Samuel is going to teach is that only when the king subordinates his will to the will of Yahweh can he and Israel truly experience life and blessing. Only when the king acts as a vice regent, not a dictator or a corrupt monarchy above the law, but only when the king submits himself to the Yahweh, the will of Yahweh, and the law of Yahweh, when he subordinates his will to Yahweh's will, then can he and the people have blessings. And Samuel's going to show you when people don't do that, Saul, and when people do and do not do that, David, and show you the fruits of it. So that ultimately when King Jesus comes along, you will know the fruits and the consequence, or the fruit, the good fruit and the rotten fruit of subordinating and not subordinating to the will of the king. This means that the prophet, who is the only one who knows the will of Yahweh, has the authority and the right to enforce the will of Yahweh. So he's also the one that says, if you don't obey the will of Yahweh, king or people, I have the right to execute the judgments of the law on you. If I give you the will, I also have the right to enforce the will. So in a way, he's also a guardian of the covenant law. He's a guardian of the covenant law. He makes sure that the people execute the will of Yahweh. And if they don't, then he enforces the judgments of the law on the people for that. So this is why he will put kings into power and he will dethrone kings as well. And this is why the prophet will pronounce the blessings of God. And when Israel disobeys, he will bring the judgment of the Assyrians and the Babylonians on Israel. He is the one who speaks the will of Yahweh, and he executes the judgment of Yahweh if they do not follow along. So Samuel leads them. He's incredibly faithful. He's not perfect. He's not without flaws, but he's faithful. He's like a Boaz and a Ruth and a Naomi. And he's faithful to serve, but over time he gets older. And the people are afraid of who will be the next leader. And they say, you're getting old. Which is their subtle way of saying, you've lost your usefulness. And you're going to die soon. Now here's the irony. Samuel actually doesn't die for like another 20 years. Well, maybe 10. He doesn't die for another 10 years. That's still a long time. And God uses him incredibly powerfully throughout those 10 years. He puts Saul into power. He judges Saul. He uses Samuel to kill people that Saul was supposed to kill. He's like a little old Chuck Norris, okay? He's still got it in him, even in the 70s and 80s. So their assessment of his oldness and uselessness is inaccurate because God can use anybody whether you think you can or not. And so over time, the people feared what would happen in Samuel when they died. So they said to them, we want a king like all the other nations. Now remember, their desire for a king is not wrong. Genesis 49 said God was going to send a king one day. Numbers 22 said God was going to send a king one day. Deuteronomy 18 said that God would lift up a prophet-like king who would come one day. Deuteronomy 17 also said that when you have a king, he's to look like this. The problem was not that they asked for a king. The problem was, first, they rejected God's leader that he already had for them. He had already appointed a leader for them, and it was Samuel. They decided that Samuel needed to retire, not God. You cannot de-appoint what God has appointed. So they rejected God's leader. And then this other problem was that they wanted one like all the other nations. 
God wanted a king to act like a vice-regent. The kings like the other nations are despots who do what they want. God wanted them to be unique and unlike anything else in creation at Mount Sinai. They want to look just like all the other nations. When you say, oh, but everybody else is doing it, and I know that's a phrase that kids say more often than adults, but we have another way of saying it. We're like, oh, I'm not going to be, they're going to think I'm weird and I'm gonna, not going to fit in at work or, oh, there's pressure to go along with everything. When you begin to have the desire to be like everybody else, you might as well just spit in the face of Christ on the cross. Because the very reason that he died for you was to make you unique and unlike anything else, to make you holy. And when you say, I don't want to be unique, I want to be like everybody else in my nation, then you're basically rejecting the primary premise of the cross. The primary premise of the cross. To make you unlike anything else. To be used in a way that nobody else is being used. To accomplish what nobody else is accomplishing. Now the other nations use people to gain power. Because this is the basic default of human nature. The Deuteronomic king, the vice-regent, is the one who sacrifices himself to serve the people to accomplish God's will. God gives them exactly what they wanted. He says, fine, you want a king like all the other nations? I'll give you a king like all the other nations. You don't want to go in the promised land? Fine, I'll let you live in the wilderness. This is what he does. He gives you exactly what you want because he gave you free will. Fine, you don't want to live in the garden with me and you want to eat the tree of wisdom and get it your way? You can have that. He is always giving you what you want. Fine, you want to build a government without God and lift yourselves up? Fine, you can do that. You're going to reap the consequences. You're going to reap the judgment. But I'll give you what you want because I'm a God who gave you free will. Well, I'm a God who gave you free choice. I don't really like free will. Free will assumes that you have the freedom to do whatever you will. And that's not true. I don't have the will to fly. I have a limit. And I don't have a will to do whatever I want because eventually I'm going to smack up against your will. And if you have a will to do one thing and I have a will to do another thing, then it's survival of the fittest. So you don't actually have free will. You only have, your will only goes as far as your strength and your abilities. What we have is free choice. We have the freedom to choose whatever you want. So if you want to go up against somebody else's will and lose, you have that choice. But you don't have free will. You have free choice. And it's not until you fully accept and realize that the only power that you have in your entire life is what you say yes and no to, then you're truly understanding what you're capable of and what you're not. Because yes, I can say yes to my job, but the minute I say yes to my job, my job controls me. It has rules for me. It has expectations for me, at least in those hours. And if I don't submit to my boss and my company, then they will have the freedom to say no to you and fire you. And then the minute I could quit, but the minute I quit and say, yes, I'm going to quit, then now I am subject to the authority of unemployment and the limitations that it brings in my life. The minute I say yes to my wife and marriage, then I'm under her authority to a certain point. I am to obey my covenant with her. If I don't, there's consequences. I'm saying no to freedoms of being single and all the things that there. The minute you say yes to children, you lose a whole lot of more freedom in a way that you're subject to them. All you have is yes and no. And the minute you say yes or no, yes to something, you're putting yourself under its authority. And if you say no to that, then you're putting yourself under a different kind of authority. And until you realize that that's really the only power you have is to say yes to the will of God or not, then you really begin to understand how limited we are really truly in our power and how much we really need Christ. 
because you're going to be enslaved to something, the world or the all-loving God who's willing to die for you. This is what God is saying. You want it? Say yes to it. Fine. You'll get a king like all the other nations, and you will be under his authority. And I love Samuel's speech here. It's the one I've always wanted to give, but everybody has always told me you're not allowed to say that. But basically what Samuel says, on that day, your king will oppress you. He will take you and force your men into wars that they do not want to fight for more land that you don't need, that God could have given you. He will take your women and force them to serve him in the fields and this kind of stuff. He will tax you until you feel like you're a slave. And when that day comes, remember, I told you so. And don't come crying to me because this is what you wanted. So he gave him over and he gave him Saul. But Saul became exactly what they wanted. He became a king that did not trust in God. He always did what he wanted. The minute Samuel told him what to do, he immediately disobeyed. He failed miserably. And then when he did disobey and Samuel held him accountable to it, he said, no, 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 no. I didn't do anything wrong. See, because I'm going to do it this way. And it's okay. It's technically, he justified his sin every single time. He never took account of responsibility for his sins. He always justified it. And ultimately, Saul did not trust or obey Yahweh. On two different occasions, he directly disobeyed Yahweh. And as a judgment, the kingship over Israel was taken from his descendants and from him. So here's the other thing. When you're given that much authority and power, king and prophet, when you disobey a direct command of God, it automatically leads to death. Moses was given that power and authority. And when he disobeyed a direct command of God, he died. When Saul did this, he died. When Ahab, this king, did it, he died. When you're held up with that much power, if you abuse your power and you say no to God when he gives you a direct command, that is going to affect his people and an example and destroy them. And with that much power comes that much judgment when you disobey. If they're just sinners, God doesn't kill them. But when God specifically comes to you face to face and says, King, prophet, do this. And you say, I'm not going to win that. Then the consequences are drastic. As just a normal sinner who messes up, well, then there's also forgiveness and all that kind of stuff. And so Saul was dethroned. As a result, God went after a man who was after his own heart. Saul became so evil that he was willing to kill 85 of God's priests and their entire families just because he was paranoid that they were working with David. This shows you how he became like a Saddam Hussein, a Fidel Castro, a Stalin. Then, when God chose David, he repeatedly tried to kill God's chosen king. Over and over again, he refused to acknowledge that Yahweh had a new leader and tried to kill him over and over and over again. So Yahweh chose David to become the next king. David was a man after Yahweh's own heart. Now, this doesn't mean that David was perfect. Because in David's life, he's going to have three major problems. One, he is a prideful, arrogant man who likes rewards and praise. You will see this when he asks for reward. I will kill Goliath, but what's the reward? What's the reward? What's the reward? And then when he kills Goliath, he cuts the head off of Goliath and carries it as a trophy for the next 20 years. He's also got another problem. He likes the ladies. He's a womanizer, and he sees what he likes, and he takes what he wants, and he can because he's king. And this is ultimately seen with the fact that he collects hundreds of wives, which the law said he wasn't allowed to do, and then with his sin with Bathsheba. And this gets him in trouble. And then the other problem that he has is he never deals justly with people who are close to him. 
his family and his friends, he never holds them accountable to their sins. We're told that he never, ever once ever disciplined or rebuked his children ever. And when they have power and wealth, that's a horrible combination. And so as a result, his children lived out his example. And they took it to the extreme. And so he wasn't a perfect man. He was flawed horribly. And this is seen as a violation of Bathsheba and his killing of Uriah. Unlike Saul, when he was confronted, he repented of his sins. When Abigail came and confronted him for his desire to wipe out an entire village, just like Saul had just done, David says, you're right, I am wrong. Please forgive me. When God confronted him through Nathan that you have wronged Bathsheba and Uriah, David said, I have sinned. He didn't justify it. He didn't try to explain why God was misinterpreting and misseeing things. He admitted it and he accepted the consequences. David showed himself to be a man or woman after God's own heart. We've already talked about this. Blameless. Not because he was perfect. His behavior in a lot of ways was not any different than Saul. He almost exterminated, he almost exterminated an entire village just because they wouldn't give him bread. He violated a woman against her will and murdered her husband and all the men under his command in order to cover it all up. He extorted another man for money. He cuts the head off and carries it around as a trophy. His behavior is deplorable. I would never let him anywhere near my daughters. In a lot of ways, his behavior did not look anything different than Saul. Yet God looked at his heart and said, You are a man after my own heart. Because even though your behavior is not always exemplatory, it's not always obedient, in a lot of ways it's just downright horrific and gross. But deep down inside, you want to know me. You want a relationship with me. You want to please me. And when you do mess up, you repent. You repent. And isn't this all of us? None of us can be perfect. Being a man or a woman after God's own heart is not perfection. Being a man after woman, man or woman after God's own heart is being a deeply flawed person who recognizes that we're flawed. And even when our behavior goes astray, we seek to desire God. We do everything in our power to know Him. Bible reading, prayer, gathering with believers, accountability. And when we do mess up, because we will, then we repent and we come to God and we seek his forgiveness. And if you're doing that, that's faith. That's a man or woman after God's own heart. And if that's what God does with us, we need to do the same thing with our children. Our children are going to mess up. And unfortunately, they might go out and get high or they might go out and have sex before marriage in the way that you didn't want them to. They might say things that they shouldn't have. And the question is, do you still stand beside them and say, thank you for telling me that you did that? Are you willing to repent? Will you experience the love and grace of God? Now, do they still go through the consequences? Yes, David did too. Should they be held accountable? Yes. But we should accept them and love them because this is what God has done for us. This is what it means to be a man or a woman who goes on heart. And this is the difference between them. Yet even though he had this heart, he still messed up severely. And because of his bad parenting... His son ends up rebelling against him and tears the entire nation apart. Yes, there was no condemnation for David, but he reaped the consequences. And it showed that even the man who was after God's own heart still failed to be what Adam and Eve were intended to be. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
David stayed true in his devotion to Yahweh throughout his entire life. He never, ever abandoned God into idolatry, ever in his entire life. Even though he committed grievous sins, he never pursued idols and went after other gods. He defeated and drove back the Philistines who lived in Israel, and he began to expand the borders of the land to include the land that Yahweh had promised to Abraham. He did what no other generation was able to do to actually conquer and hold the promised land that God had promised. After David's death, his son Solomon became king. And when he asked for wisdom, this pleased Yahweh tremendously. Yahweh gave him wisdom and everything else he ever could have asked for. Because see what Solomon is doing, you're like, oh my gosh, he's it. He's the Messiah, right? He's the promised son of David who has now come. And he's doing what Adam and Eve never did. He's going to God for wisdom instead of his own self or the tree for wisdom. And at this point, you get this typology that he's it. He's the Messiah. He's built the kingdom of God more than anybody else has done. He's got all the promised land under his control, which nobody has ever done. He's incredibly obedient to God. He's wise. He's asked for wisdom. He is the Adam and Eve that they were supposed to be. However, he eventually chose to use that wisdom for his own power rather than the benefit of the people in the kingdom. Then he built a temple which Yahweh did not want to replace the tabernacle which Yahweh had commanded to be built. We went into this in greater detail in the book of Kings. You can go look at that. But when David asked God, when David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 wanted to build God a temple, God said, no, I don't want a temple. He said, if I ever wanted a temple, I would have asked for a temple. But I wanted a tabernacle, so I told you to build a tabernacle. And he clearly laid out the plans for a tabernacle, but he never laid out the plans for a temple. And the benefit of a tabernacle is it's... It's, it's mobile. It would move from city to city to city, and all people would have access to it in the nation of Israel over time. But a temple is stationary, and only one group of people have access to it, and eventually they're going to think they're better than everybody else because they have the temple nobody else does. And it tends to be a temple that glorifies what man has built. A simple little tent is about coming into the presence of God. A stone temple that is built and looks like the pagan temples with all of its glory and splendor has more to do with the works of man and celebrates men, the works of humans, and celebrates what they can do rather than what God is doing for us so we can have access to him. And so Solomon disregarded God's command not to build a temple and did it anyways. Yet Yahweh chose to indwell the temple and use it. Just as he chose to dwell with Israel, even though they were sinners and disobedient, and used them to expand his garden, even though Saul was not the king that God wanted, but he chose to use him and bless him despite that, even though we are sinners, he chooses to indwell us with the Holy Spirit despite our sin and rebellion at times. He chose to indwell the temple and use it because this is what the people chose to replace the tabernacle with. Because sometimes God allows us to do and uses it despite what he has expressly forbidden and condemned due to the stubborn persistence of the people. He had a problem like his dad. He liked the ladies. And he began to marry lots of women. But because his kingdom got bigger than David's, his harem got bigger than David's, and he included lots of foreign women. And they brought their pagan gods in. And because he really wanted them to like him, and he really wanted their love, 
probably because a dad that never loved him, he began to allow their idolatry in his home in order to make them happy. And then he began tempted, and he did what David never did. He worshipped idols. David had a lot of flaws, but he never walked away from God. Solomon walked away from God. He worshipped idols. As a result, God tore the kingdom away from him. One of the things that God did with David is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gave another covenant. And he told David, because you're a man after God's own heart, I'm going to make your line an everlasting line, and I'm going to make your kingdom an everlasting kingdom. Now this begins to set you up for the Messiah, because now we know the Messiah comes from Israel, then we know it comes from Judah, and David, who's from Judah, we now know it's going to come from the family of David. And so he promises them this. And because he promised David that he would always have a line that lasted forever, and because he promised David that he would always have his line as kings, he tore the kingdom away from Solomon, but allowed Solomon's family to keep one tribe as his kingdom, the tribe of Judah, the one that he came from. This kingdom split was already happening because of David started to split. Way back in the day, right before he became king, he was in Philistia instead of Israel when they needed him to become king. And the people didn't like that their king was in the, with the enemy instead of with them, and they began to lose trust in him. And so the kingdom began to split in their hearts. I didn't vote for you, and you're not where you're supposed to be. And then David began to screw that up by favoring Judah more. And then when his son rebelled, his son took advantage of that split and created the split even more. And then Solomon favored Judah even more. And then when the kingdom split, it just split where these two men had already created the split. It was a natural consequence of their behavior. The difference is God wasn't holding the nation together anymore out of his grace and mercy. He allowed it to split as a judgment. God didn't make it split. God allowed the inevitable to happen because of their disobedience, because of their selfishness, because of their abuse of power. So the kingdom split into two nations. Israel would be the ten tribes in the north, and Judah would be the tribe in the south. And the eleventh and twelfth tribe is a longer conversation. But basically, it splits into two kingdoms. Israel in the north, and Judah in the south. Now all the kings of Israel from this point on were wicked. They were horribly wicked. There was one guy, Jehu, that kind of got close but didn't really finish the race well. But they were all horribly wicked, evil kings. And they promoted idolatry. They promoted the decline of morality. They oppressed their people. They really began to look like kings like all the other nations. And because of this, most of the righteous people in Israel began to migrate to the south. They decided to move to Judah. And when all the righteous people move from the north to Judah, vacating it, it's like fleeing California. And all you're left is with corrupt leaders and the people who like those corrupt leaders. Then you have a horribly wicked nation. And there's not much left there. These people begin to flee. Now, Judah also had wicked kings, but they had some good kings too. So Judah was more like David. Every once in a while they got it right and every once in a while they got it wrong. But overall, eventually, they're going to fall into gross idolatry as well. So God sent prophets. He sent two major prophets. The first prophet was Elijah. In the 800s, he sent Elijah and then Elisha to judge the northern kingdoms and call the people back to Yahweh. 
Elijah's actions and miracles made him seem like he was the awaited prophet. We already went through this in the book of Kings, but there were lots of things that Elijah did that began to make him look like, oh my gosh, he's the Messiah. He's finally the one that we've been waiting for. Your hopes keep getting up. And then he blatantly disobeys God. Three things God tells him to do, and he only does one of them. And after he does that, he says, I quit. I'm done. Now, we understand emotionally why he quit. I mean, when everybody hates you, is trying to kill you, and no matter what you do, they don't listen ever, that makes you want to quit. It's kind of like being a parent. The difference is he actually quits, and he disobeys God's command. And so he shows that he failed just like Moses. Just like Moses was awesome and great, but disobeyed God, so does Elijah. Elisha then comes in, and he continues the ministry. But he also failed too, because he tries to do what Elijah failed to do when he disobeyed, but he got the message wrong and passed it off to somebody else. And it just created this huge ripple effect of chaos through the nation because he didn't get it right. And he shows that he too fails to be the perfect Adam and Eve that they were intended to be. All this shows is that every person after person after person just keeps failing miserably. No matter how awesome they are as a king or a prophet, they can't do it. The kingdoms continue to decline until they became worse than the Canaanites. Second Kings literally says that Israel became worse than the Canaanites. And Deuteronomy, God said, if you do the same thing as the Canaanites, I will punish you like I did the Canaanites. Don't think that I play favorites and you're exempt because I chose you. Now, what God said is I'm going to wipe all the Canaanites for their sin, but because I made a covenant with you, I will not wipe you all out. I will preserve a remnant of faithful people, but I will wipe out a lot of the kingdom and the exile. They begin to fall into this horrible sins of the Canaanites. So Yahweh began to warn Israel through the prophets. And the prophets begin to rise up. And between the 700s and the 600s, prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet came. And they warned Israel of the exile that Moses promised would come. They warned that Israel would be taken by the Assyrians, Israel and Judah, if they did not repent. And Israel and Judah... Israel did not repent, but Judah did. And because Israel did not repent, they go into judgment, and Judah does not go into judgment. So in 722 B.C., Yahweh sent the Assyrian Empire, the first empire the world had ever seen, to come, and they massacred and killed most of the Israelites, and those that they didn't, they took off into exile and put them into other nations where they were completely lost outside the Promised Land. They were no longer in the new Garden of Eden. But eventually Judah also failed, and their repentance only lasted so long. And God said, don't think that you escaped the judgment just because you repented. Repentance needs to last. And because your repentance didn't last, the prophets began to warn of the Babylonians. And so in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came and sacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple of God, and they took them off into exile. What God is saying is, even if you're my chosen people, I will still hold you accountable like everyone else in the world. In 586, God's glory left the temple. So the temple became just a building. And God then allowed the temple to be destroyed. So there's no more dwelling of God with the people. When they constantly shook their fists at God and said, we're not going to follow you. We're not going to be in relationship with you. We're not going to obey you. We're going to worship other gods. We're going to go have affairs with other gods over and over and over again. We want nothing to do with you. God said, fine. If you don't want me, I'm going to leave. And he left the temple. He left Israel and he stopped dwelling with them. 
And because his protection, his love was no longer with them, the world happened. All the nations that were kept at bay because of God's love and mercy was allowed to happen. Same thing with your kids. If you have a kid or someone in your school or your church that's constantly rebelling all the time, eventually like, you don't want my help anymore. I can't help you. And now you're on your own in the world. And I can't protect you from the world because I'm not all powerful. And you completely reject all my help too. And so the world's going to happen to you. And I, I got to watch it happen in my brokenheartedness because I can't stop it when you don't allow me to help you. And this is what God is doing. But because God made a promise in the Restoration Covenant, and because he made a promise to send the Messiah, he told them that if ever they repented, he would bring them back out of exile. And he promised that they would so that he would bring them back out of exile. And so this is where they are now, in exile. And for 70 years, they'll be in exile. No glory of God, no prophets, no promised land, no blessings of God. Until God is going to fulfill his promise to bring them back out of exile. 